Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception. But I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. I did not trade arms for hostages. Welcome to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I'm here to tell the stories that we found out the hard way through public records and FOIA requests. One of the weird quirks about FOIA and other public records laws is that the government both makes the law, enforces the law, and is required to follow the law. This multi-role relationship with open government laws is not the easiest to navigate and sometimes creates opportunities for abuse, mismanagement, or just simple incompetence that lead to lack of oversight by the people who are really empowered to hold the government accountable, you and me. Washington State's open government law, the Public Records Act, was passed in 1972 in response to the Watergate scandal. The law required that the Attorney General's office help the public make use of the new law. And in the late 90s and early aughts, then Attorney General Rob McKenna thought that a great way to make that happen would be to create a public records ombuds, a person who facilitated public records requests and answered requesters' questions. The first person to hold that role was a man named Greg Overstreet. Greg witnessed firsthand how helpful that role could be and eventually how toothless it became. More recently, Joan Mell, one of the best civil justice litigators in Washington and a regular user of public records, has seen the Attorney General's office opposing transparency efforts rather than simply not helping. I've worked with Joan and Greg in the past and spoke to them a few weeks ago. They walked me through the history of the Washington Attorney General's relationship with transparency, from people's advocate to government advocate. Here's what they have to say. I think my first exposure to public records law came um, in private practice as an attorney in Tacoma, needing to find out whether or not I could establish a case for one of my clients. I uh, represent people in businesses who are highly regulated, and there's a lot of complexity with government regulation, much of which the people who have to interface with government don't understand. That's kind of why I have value. How did you learn that you could request those kind of records? Whew, that takes me back so long. I don't know. That's pre-gray hair. Joan has an amazing head of gray hair. I think I started more actively using and understanding public records requests after I had actually seen government in operation from the inside and uh, understood what kind of records there were and information that government had. I think it was actually eye-opening. I worked down in the legislative arena for um, a nonpartisan staff Senate committee position. And because there were a broad range of interest and nonpart I had to be nonpartisan, I was able to ask a lot of questions of agencies and get more information than I think I knew before then. So after that initial exposure to public records law, how much of a part of your career would you say, not not just using public records, but advocacy in favor of more transparent government record keeping has been? It's every day, every day. It's, it's fundamental. It is so essential 
to really resolving conflicts, not creating conflicts necessarily, but to resolving them, getting an understanding of what the issues are and why government is doing what it's doing or why um, somebody needs some cert certain relief or why they're not getting it. Um, the path to resolution is knowledge and knowledge can only be obtained through transparency and cooperation. And once you get that, um, you do have a free and democratic society that allows for meaningful, respectful conversation and solutions that aren't readily available if, um, if information isn't openly shared. Joan's introduction to public records is kind of unique and a really interesting story. Greg and I have a much more similar story, just kind of getting thrown into the deep end right out of law school. First public records uh, experience was actually a very interesting story. Um, I was general counsel for the Building Industry Association of Washington, which is the Home Builders Trade Association. And they also ran a pretty big political action uh, committee. And uh, the first case I did with public records was a public records request to the Public Disclosure Commission of all things for, and I forget what it was for, but it was for something um, that would politically embarrass the Public Disclosure Commission. Um, made the request, they denied the request, and I filed suit. I think it was my third lawsuit I'd ever filed or something like that. This is uh, back a hundred years ago when I was very young. And um, not only did we win and get attorney's fees, $18,000 in attorney's fees, but the judge, he said, and I quote, because it's burned into my memory, I find it ironic that today I'm fi finding a violation of the Public Disclosure Act by the Public Disclosure Commission. And that was a huge political uh, win, if you will. That was, that was great. And I remember after the win, coming back, driving back from the courthouse to the BIW offices. And it felt like, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but I have seen the movies. Um, when they come back from blowing up the Death Star and they, uh, they walk down the hallway and everybody's cheering, that's what it was like um, <laughs> after that case. So that was my first experience and probably my best experience with the Public Records Act. From there, Greg really built an impressive resume and, and strong reputation as a guy who understood the Public Records Act and could make sure that agencies did the right thing. So it made perfect sense that when Attorney General Rob McKenna was looking for somebody to fill this new role, he turned to Greg. There's a statute that, and I don't remember the citation to it, but nobody cares, but there's a statute that says rather vaguely that the attorney general's office will provide information um, in, in a, about the Public Records Act. A fair reading of the statute would be that, and, and it was written in 1972, back when people used paper, uh, would be the AG's office would, would sort of generate pamphlets or something like that. I think that's the, the context um, in which that statute exists. And so from that, uh, when I was the special assistant attorney general for government accountability, I was I was the first ombudsman. It was a, a rather forward thinking idea that uh, attorney general Rob McKenna came up with uh, when he was running. 
attorneys general have very broad roles that include things like representing the state or state agencies when they're sued or advising the state and agencies when they don't know what the law requires. But that can be a rather political position. And in Washington state in particular, it's an elected office. So the political components of the law come up very often. Obviously a political position since it is an elected position, but it it also is probably one of the most powerful positions in the state of Washington. when you have an attorney general who is the legal advisor for all agencies, what agencies do come from that office. And so uh, you look to the attorney general to set the standards of how agencies behave, not only in the public records realm, but in all of the ways that you might be seeking public records to find out how agencies are acting. So candidate Rob McKenna ran for attorney general on the promise that he would create a special role just to enforce the Public Records Act. And then he implemented it. And to his credit, and not many politicians actually follow through on what they promised, he promised in the elections. It was actually an issue in the election. Uh, He ran against uh, Deborah Sen, who was the insurance commissioner at the time. It was, I wasn't going to, I'm not going to say it's the biggest issue, but it was, it was a, a minor but significant issue about creating an ombudsman office. And of course, ombudsman, the Swedish definition is that it's uh, somebody who assists the public. A lot of newspapers, at least used to, have an ombudsman who would be the person the public would turn to, uh, to get a correction or to raise appearance of fairness questions about a report or something like that. It's sort of internal affairs or office of inspector general sort of. Um, Anyway, I was the first ombudsman and uh, that was the role that I had and it was sort of a stretch statutory authority wise from the attorney general providing pamphlets. The idea was the ombudsman would, and I did, uh, go and I did speaking tours, and I uh, I held Public Records Act and, and Open Meetings Act um, classes for any government entity that wanted them. Quite a few took me up on it, um, and I went and I spoke to the public, and that was the information that was provided under that statute. And then, um, we came up with the attorney general's model rules, which were codified as regulations and they were voluntary non-binding best practices. They were rather detailed. When Greg and Joan talk about model rules, what they really mean are recommended practices for different agencies to use in certain circumstances. Since agencies exercise public power, they have to create rules that they use to govern how they use that power. And one way they can go about creating these rules is adopting model rules that the state attorney general has created for them. And they serve as quite a reference point. Um, Some jurisdictions adopted the model rules as their own rules. Um, uh, And the Supreme Court has cited them, state Supreme Court has cited the model rules as persuasive authority. So that was helpful too. 
So that's, that's what I did and what the McKenna administration did. I think it was extremely popular by among everyone except government, um, state and local government. I was in a weird position because when a state agency, when I'm helping somebody uh, get public records and a state agency has denied their public records, sometimes the lawyer for the state agency uh, would be down the hall from me. And I had to go and say, no, you need to turn over these records. It was a non-binding letter, but boy, was it a heck of an exhibit in any litigation. It became a de facto attorney general's opinion, basically, even though it technically wasn't. So it put me in a weird spot uh, against state agencies. And then it's not that the local governments were any picnic either. They uh, kind of ganged up on me. They have several uh, associations, you know, the cities and the counties and school districts all have associations. And um, I found out that I was public enemy number one among those associations and uh, got into it a little bit with some of them. When Greg would, was in office, I knew that I would have a point of contact, one who would call me back, who would take an interest in the issues and would actually do something about it. I never expected or anticipated that the ombudsperson man at the time would uh, necessarily take my side, but I knew that I would have a neutral. A neutral. Isn't that what we would all want the government to be when enforcing law? After Greg left the ombuds position, the position started to change, and not for the better. The knives came out. More after the break. Hey, y'all. I hope you're enjoying the show. I got involved with Open Records because of my time on the board with the Washington Coalition for Open Government. WashCog is an incredible organization. They only have one employee and a board of really active volunteers. If you could help support the mission of Washington Coalition for Open Government, I would really appreciate it. See a link in the podcast notes. Welcome back. So we're following the progression of the Public Records Ombuds, a position created within the Attorney General's office to facilitate better transparency in Washington government. But after Greg Overstreet left that role, things started to change, and that really began when Tim Ford assumed the position. Yeah, um, since time has passed, I feel like I can speak with candor. And uh, I no longer live in Washington state, and uh, while I hold a Washington law license, I don't really practice in Washington state anymore. Um, candidly, when I left, and that was in uh, June of 2017, the knives came out. Um, people that were nice to me, uh, especially senior staff people in the AG's office, um, when I wasn't going to be around anymore, um, they, they let their candid feelings be known, and they were universally pro-agency feelings that they had. And uh, they would say things like, uh, I can't believe that we even had an office in which the AG's office would take positions against state agencies. Um, so there was that. And then when I left, I was replaced by Tim Ford, who's a very capable attorney. Um, he was constrained quite a bit. Uh, he, he had strictures placed on him and uh, he couldn't do what I did. Um, and, 
And so you can't judge Tim Ford's performance, can't compare it to mine because I had free reign to call him like I see him. And Tim probably privately called them like he saw them. I'm sure he did. He's a principled guy. And then he may not be able to write uh, a letter that says what I could say. And he had a lot more control placed on him. When Tim Ford came along, um, I certainly tapped into his brain trust because he, as Greg said, is a, a highly competent attorney, well in the know and, and sensitive to the issues on both sides. So I could reach him. He did call back. He was communicative, but he did not take the same uh, outward approach to actually contacting the agency and trying to get to some solution uh, to the problem. He would talk and give feedback and, and um, be a, a, a voice you could talk to, but it wouldn't much go beyond think tanking an issue. So Greg was appointed to this controversial role monitoring the government's behavior in response to public records requests by Attorney General Rob McKenna. But McKenna also appointed his successor, Tim Ford, and Tim was given a much shorter leash. So what gives? I can only speculate. Um, I think the, the longer Rob McKenna was in office, the more sympathetic he became to the agencies. And so I'm sure that I'm sure that I caused McKenna a lot of political problems. And he probably was tired of having to talk to mayors and county commissioners um, about me. And so he needed to tighten down on the the free reign of the ombudsman. And I think Tim bore the brunt of the of the bearing down um, that probably was my fault. <laughs> I think it's important to note here that this story of decay from protecting the rights of the less powerful to actively centralizing power in a few hands is not unique to the Washington State Open Records Ombuds. It's true of humans in power throughout history and across the globe. Consider the special prosecutor Congress tasked with investigating the Watergate scandal. President Nixon's DOJ did create a special prosecutor and followed the letter of Congress's order, but Nixon fired several DOJ officials until he found one that would minimize the investigation into his own crimes. The fact is, government is poorly equipped to monitor itself. It doesn't have the right incentives, and frankly, it can't. And that's what we see in the story of the Attorney General's office and in dozens of other stories you'll hear in the coming weeks and months over the course of the show. Okay, soapbox over, back to the story. Um, so Tim was the second ombudsman, and then the third one is Nancy Creer, who is a nice person, um, but she's been a career agency lawyer, and I, I don't have any details. I don't have any specific examples because I've been out of touch um, for a while on the details at least. Um, so I don't know if she's calling them correctly, in my opinion, correctly or not, but I know that she was a, a pro-agency person. It would surprise me given her, I don't know, habits and 
her natural allegiance to agencies, if she were able to, um, I'll just be honest, be as objective as I was. Uh, Nancy Career, um, just invisible in my mind. I, I, I guess I shouldn't say invisible because the Attorney General's office did come out with rules uh, that I certainly spoke out against in, in some ways and asked for uh, language that was not integrated into the rules and have, I, I, I have felt that there was in the past language in the rules that, that you could turn to and use to help you, but anything that's helpful to a requester is pretty much gone out of there. There's There was a concerted effort to take out those provisions that came up in litigation and were relied upon in litigation to help flesh out the meaning and the purpose and policy objectives in a way that was favorable to requesters that is gone. Uh, but most obviously, she's not somebody you can call. She's not somebody you can talk to. She's not somebody who returns calls. She's not somebody who, um, will help you get a solution to the problem. Former Attorney General Robert McKenna appointed Greg Overstreet to be the first public records ombuds. As you've heard, Greg brought a very active pro-neutrality, pro-disclosure approach to this position. And Tim Ford, although less active, brought a similar perspective. But then we got Nancy Creer. Ms. Creer was appointed by the current Attorney General, Bob Ferguson. Mr. Ferguson has a very different approach to public disclosure than his predecessors, an approach that Joan Mell knows far too well. Bob Ferguson is allowing his office to withhold public records, to play games with public records requests. He should be incredibly transparent uh, as a leader of a very large state agency influencing every other state agency. The most recent example that I find incredibly offensive is just sua sponte closing a request on its own despite knowing they had not completed providing all of the public records um, and that I was still interested in obtaining the, the public records. They just closed it. As Joan mentioned before, she frequently makes public records requests to protect her clients' interests and to help her in litigation. This is one of those requests. Joan has explained this case to me, and it's kind of complicated, but the short version is that the Attorney General used to say that a certain law didn't apply to Joan's client because of the size of the company or some other regulatory thing that made it not applicable. But recently, when Bob Ferguson decided to start enforcing that law more aggressively, he decided that that new interpretation saying that Joan's client was regulated by this law would apply. Joan is trying to find the old memo where the attorney general's office had told her client that it was okay. In 2018, I had a longtime client who uh, became the target of Bob Ferguson's political uh, aspirations. This may seem like a bold claim from Joan that the reason her client was being targeted was because of Bob Ferguson's political goals, but she has pretty solid evidence. You know, it becomes obviously political when, when the practices have changed dramatically over the years and the advice changes based on who's president. That's when it becomes a political game, and that's where the PRA is so essential to outing 
that kind of abuse of power back when the issue boiled up or came to the forefront and was kind of in the media and being played out, I, I did a public records request to the attorney general's office and asked for all of the information that I knew existed. There is a memo that I have from the Department of Labor and Industries instructing uh, the agency by the attorney general's office, there's no jurisdiction over my client's facility, okay? That is the key memo that kept the agency from enforcing the law for years. Why is the applicability of the Minimum Wage Act a secret? Every employer should know if it applies to them. And he's the one to advise the agency, so why shouldn't his information and his advice be public knowledge? That's what formal AGOs are. They're, they're in the position to tell the community how to follow the law. Um, so they got it by email and they have a public records officer that you direct everything to. So they have a designated person who you communicate with. That person got my letter and under the public records act, you're supposed to tell me within five days, uh, what you're going to do. You're going to either give it to me, what I've requested, or you have to tell me, um, why you can't give it to me and give me a reasonable estimate as to when you will, um, get me what I've asked for. So the letter I got back, I think said that they had started their search uh, and that they would get back to me in a couple months. And I think I responded back and said, no, I really, I really wanna get stuff sooner. Can't you um, prioritize some of these things and get them back to me? Silence, nothing. And there is statutory language that says you do have to be helpful to requesters. You have to be responsive and communicate with them. Um, but they didn't. And then um, <laughs> it turned into this prolonged process of itsy bitsy installments that went from 2018 to uh, 2021. And so every month I would get an email saying, we've got some records for you. It's going to cost you this much money. You need to get us some money before we give you anything. So I'd literally have to, you know, write a check for $3, $4, whatever they were charging me, put it in snail mail, send it to the AG's office, let them process it. And then lo and behold, at some point later, I would get in the mail, regular snail mail. Yes, wait for it a CD with content on it. Essentially, what she's saying is that every month she has to babysit this request and say, nope, this wasn't sufficient, and yep, I'll pay you, I don't know, a couple dollars for the CD that you'll have to put it on to send it to me. Side note, they don't have to put it on a CD. It's just an excuse to slow the process down and put arbitrary deadlines in the fulfillment process so that requesters might miss one, as happened here because Joan was in litigation with the Attorney General's office. And I tell you what, it's the, <laughs> it's the most uh, uh, emotional experience when you finally get your public records requests in. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but you know what you want. You're so eager to get it because you, you know it's there and you just want to get it and you want to see it and you want to have the knowledge every single installment 
I, I mean, I, they were giving me documents that weren't generated from within the office. They were giving me things like advertisements. They, I mean, they, they, have to, they have to be making deliberate conscious decisions to find the most mundane, non-responsive, non-helpful, Joan Mel doesn't want this information to charge me for, make me eager to get it. And then, then this big letdown of, oh, well, thanks a lot. That's not anything that I want. So, you know, you begin to try to tell them that, no, I really need these things. Can you prioritize that? And it just falls on deaf ears and the installments go on and on and on and on and on. Then in this particular instance, literally, I had been asking for information to advocate for a client that Bob Ferguson was suing. I knew I needed the information. I'm in trial in that case where I need the documents I'm asked, I've asked him for, and his office sends my office an email saying, well, we got some more records for you. Now, mind you, every month I've paid for the records and got them for the last three years. The one month, I, my entire office is in litigation with his office. He knows it. He's doing press releases every day about it. I don't respond immediately, and they promptly close the request. I still need the documents. I need them even more now. And I, I have my office communicate back with his office and say, no, 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 no. We're sorry we missed it. We were in litigation with your office. Here's your $4. Can we have these records? And I think this time, about this time, I'm saying, can't you just email me the documents? And unbelievably, his office says, we don't have the ability to communicate with you by email. You heard that right. The Attorney General's office is claiming that it can't communicate over email in an email. But you have been for the last three years. You've sent me that little notification saying you're going to close my request if I don't send you $4 by email. I don't know, Greg. Is the AG's office the largest agency in the state? I don't know. It, it has millions and millions and millions of dollars in a very high budget. They are dealing in complex litigation cases on a day-to-day -day basis. They have, of any agency, the technological means to produce documents bulk on a, on, on a digital platform. They are choosing not to do it. For all you fellow nerds out there who are sitting there thinking, well, an email can only hold up to 25 megabytes of data, that's not really what we're talking about. Several times, agencies create, for example, Dropbox links or, you know, state equivalents that they use to share information that they then email you a link to retrieve. They give me one more installment on a CD, and in that installment with the letter and closing the CD, they say, we have closed your request. Here's the last installment. If you really want all the documents that you asked for three years ago, you're going to have to start over. Okay. I don't know that you've been responsive to anything I asked for 18 years ago or in 2018, three years ago, because nothing you gave me appears to be responsive. I know I have documents from other agencies that you should have copies of, and you should have different iterations of that you should be giving me, and you still haven't. And you close the request, and now you want me to start over, and I, I identify what? 
I still want all the same things. And um, silence, they haven't, they haven't fixed the problem. And I just sent them my final letter saying, you closed the request, I'm going to have to pursue obtaining the records by court order, so I will be filing suit. I mean, there's no, what else do you do? So stringing all these pieces together, we end up with a pretty big problem. The Attorney General's office, back when Greg Overstreet was appointed to the newly created position of public records ombuds, was supposed to be an advocate for the people of Washington to be good overseers, to be empowered to oversee the use of their power and their money. But now, as Joan is experiencing, the Attorney General's office itself isn't responding appropriately to public records requests. A court will decide whether or not they've broken the law, but it's very clear that they aren't at least in the same spirit as Greg and Rob McKenna were. I asked Greg and Joan what they think could be done to try to fix this situation, and I'll be honest, it wasn't very encouraging. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with what incentives don't work because it will illuminate my answer to what does work. What doesn't work is the threat of daily penalties uh, courts almost never award them in any meaningful amount, even if you win. The attorney's fees that the agency must pay when it loses, and by the way, as an economic matter for a law firm, it's very hard to carry tens of thousands of dollars of accounts receivable that you may or may not get, depending on whether you win the case. But even if you do, it's five years out at the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court level. Um, so what is not a, a incentive is is court awarded uh, fees and penalties. Um, besides, it's other people's money. I mean, it's tax money. There's no there's no finite amount of money for Public Records Act judgments. And then, if you if your agency exceeds it, you have to go hat in hand and grovel to, you know, the Office of Financial Management and get more money. It's just, it's other people's money, it's OPM. So that's what doesn't work. Here's what is a deterrent. And that is the, the public perception that agencies are hiding something. It used to be, and I'm talking the good old days, the late 90s and early 2000s, when an agency was tagged for violating the Public Records Act, there was a collective gasp at the agency and it was, oh no, the head of the agency now is gonna to have to explain to the newspaper why there was a Public Records Act judgment. And I've in the past had newspaper clients, so, but I'm, I have to criticize newspapers. They do not, they do not um, hold agencies feet to the fire, the 900 pound hammer that they used to be. And also I think it, another, I don't know, this isn't an incentive or disincentive, but a reason that it's no longer politically unthinkable to withhold public records is, um, I think we have a new generation or two actually of agency personnel and assistant attorneys general who have grown up as statists and the government can do no wrong. I had a newspaper publisher tell me about um, journalism students that they would hire right out of school. And she said, 
um, and she was she was a liberal, and she said that journalism students coming out of school nowadays don't question authority. And I think that this is this problem we're talking about is a is a, a small part of a larger problem, which is, and you know, not to blame people your age, but I kind of am. I'm not really sure how old Greg thinks I am, but let's just assume for the minute he means millennials. But a lot of younger people just don't understand why this is important. And so in the day-to-day machinations of agency work and assistant AG work, it's just not a priority like it used to be. I guess it's no longer unthinkable to illegally withhold records. And that is what got it done. It wasn't attorney's fees and penalties. Yeah, Greg's answer is pretty heavy. And honestly, I'm not really sure how to tackle any of the problems he identifies, or even how I feel about the idea that young people don't challenge authority. But Joan's answer had a little bit more hope to it and had a little bit more addressability. Training, training is the best thing for good outcomes and communication. The whole way to make sure Joan Mel doesn't sue you under the PRA is give her what she wants. She'll tell you, I, I'm very open. I mean, I'm litigating against Bob Ferguson's office. He knows what I want. I, I, I tell him, I want that memo you wrote. Can I please have it? I think that there's room to train on the side of requesters so that they know how to fashion requests that fit within parameters of what can be easily searched. But I think that the training on the other side of the equation um, can help agencies to create documents in a way that they're centralized with, with information in the subject line that makes it easily accessible. And unfortunately, the training we're hearing that, that is out there is to make sure that in the subject line, you don't put anything that would allow for it to be searched if you don't want it found. And I have one training slide I got from Labor and Industries instructing staff to be sure and delete, delete their delete files to make sure that when they really want to delete, they've deleted. So there you have it. That's the story of the public records ombuds in the Attorney General's office in Washington State. What once was intended to be a way to help the public hold the government accountable is now actually a tool of an office that is preventing the public from viewing its own records. But here on Revealed, we know that public records are our records, and we have a right to them. If you have any stories that you want to share on Revealed, send an email to me. I'd love to hear from you.